you become like that which you worship. If you worship self, you'll become selfish. If you worship pride, you will become prideful. If you worship tolerance, you will become tolerant. You worship alcohol, you probably will become an alcoholic. But if you worship God, you will become godly. I want you to notice that I did not say you'll become God, but you will become more like God. When I stop and think about my God, I ask the question, what is one word that best describes him? And the one word that keeps recurring in the scripture is the word holy. It's the only word that's used by the angels in a triple superlative manner. Certainly God is love, but nowhere do the angels proclaim that God is love, love, love. And God is gracious, but nowhere does it say of him that he is gracious, gracious, gracious. But certainly God is holy, and repeatedly the angels declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. Jesus saved us so that we might be declared holy and so we might demonstrate that holiness in the sight of God. This morning, we come to the next sermon in our series in 1 Timothy. The series is simply entitled Building God's Church. Today, I want to preach a sermon called Gospel Holiness. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and draw your sword. Uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Once you have met me there, will you please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 to 8 in your hearing. Please hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such te teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry, ordain them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers... You will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truth of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with the godless myth or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. From this passage, Paul teaches us that gospel holiness shapes what we believe. That's verses 1 to 5. And gospel holiness shapes how we behave, verses 6 to 8. First and foremost, gospel holiness shapes what we believe. Paul begins our passage by simply saying that the Spirit clearly tells us that in later days, some will abandon the faith. They will turn to the teaching of deceiving spirits, things taught by the demonic. This is the only place in Paul's pastoral epistles where he warns his sons in the ministry about the demonic. In Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks to these founding elders at Ephesus. And he tells them, beware. Beware. Because from within you, some will arise 
to distort the truth. In 2 Timothy, Paul will say to his son in the ministry, there's coming a day when people will not put up with sound doctrine. They will gather many preachers and teachers around them to suit their fancy, and they will declare what their itching ears want to hear. Just because somebody opens up God's word and quotes a verse from the Bible does not necessarily mean that person is speaking on behalf of God. You do remember that the devil used the scripture in an effort to entice Jesus to sin in those temptation wilderness experiences. When Paul writes to this church at Ephesus, this very church that Timothy is now pastoring, when he writes them in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells them our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But our struggles against rulers and authorities and powers of this world. Make no mistake about it. Our fight in the Christian life is a fight against the world, the flesh, and the demonic. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is against worldly systems. For the world is full of systems that are anti-God. Worldly systems and societies and cultures, nations and governments for this world has always been against God from the days of the Garden of Eden. And it always will be until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. We battle worldly systems. We also battle the flesh. The flesh, that's our sin. It's our sin nature. Now we know that as the redeemed, our sin has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Oh, but sometimes we go back to the religious cemetery and we start playing in grave clothes, don't we? Sometimes our sin, our own fleshly desires, they rear their ugly heads and they try to trip us up on our journey with Christ. We battle the world and we battle the flesh, but our battle is against the demonic. The devil and the demons have set out to distract and destroy God's people. Now, they won't be successful, but sometimes along the way, they will get in a good jab every once in a while. And the devil and his demons, they put in overtime for any saint who is serious about living for the Savior. When you get serious about Jesus, you better anticipate that the devil's going to put in overtime. After all, if you haven't been facing the devil recently, it just might be that you and the devil are walking in the same direction. But if you're walking against the devil, if you're walking in step with the Spirit, then you inevitably will bump up to the temptations of this world and the flesh and the demonic. The devil wants you to think that he is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. But those words only describe our great God. For only our great God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Only our great God is omniscient. Only God knows everything. And our great God, and only our great God, is omnipresent. All of them here and all of them there. Yes, the devil is a formidable foe, but he is a defeated foe. For greater is he that's in us than he who is in the world. You and I fight against the demonic. Make no mistake about it. And Paul says that demonic teaching comes from hypocritical liars. Hypocritical liars. The word hypocrite literally means an actor on the stage in the Roman theater Actors were called hypocrites because they would mask around on the platform portraying an identity that was not real. 
They were hypocrites. They were just acting on the stage. Paul says that this, this false teaching, this demonic teaching will come from hypocritical liars. They will not tell you the truth. They'll tell you lies. And they will not be authentic and genuine. They'll just be masquerading as a follower of Christ. But they're not really a follower of Christ. They're a follower of the devil himself. And Paul says that these hypocritical liars, they have a conscience that is seared as with a hot iron. Now I realize that Jiminy Cricket is not real. I know that Jiminy Cricket is a fictitious character created by Disney. However, he did have some pretty good advice to Pinocchio, didn't he? He simply told old Pinocchio, just let your conscience be your guide. Certainly the human conscience is a gift of common grace that God has given to all humans so that we might have a moral compass of sorts, so that intuitively we just might know what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. But Paul says that it's possible for the human conscience to be seared. The word seared, it means branded, cauterized. For just as skin can be branded, and the end result of that seared skin is that the skin becomes hard to the touch. The nerve endings are damaged and feeling in that area is lost. And Paul says the same thing can happen to a seared soul. The same thing can happen to a seared conscience. It is possible that the sin of a person's life can sear them so severely that they become calloused, hard-hearted. They become individuals who no longer have a moral compass for that moral compass has been broken. It's been paralyzed. And they can't feel the touch of God. They can't sense God speaking. They can't sense him moving. They can't hear anything that he says. And they are broken to the things of God. It is possible, dear friend, for a person to have a conscience that's so seared that they do evil and they don't even feel bad about it. Now, if you're part of the redeemed and the Spirit of God has sealed your salvation unto him, then the moment that you sin, you are convicted of that sin. And I realize that the Spirit's conviction, it can be quite painful, but it is oh so glorious. Praise God that he convicts us of sin. Because it gives evidence that we're not hard-hearted. It gives evidence that we don't have a seared conscience. It gives evidence that we are not so calloused in our spirit that we do evil and don't even feel bad about it. It is a dangerous place to be to sin and not even feel sorry about it. For the Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that we have godly grief. It is grief that leads us to repentance. So you and I, if we have the Spirit of God, we are convicted when we sin. And that conviction, it is painful, but it is so glorious. I'll define godliness in this way. That godliness is a pattern of obedience with a healthy dose of repentance whenever there's disobedience. That's godliness. We are godly when we have a pattern of obedience. We're not perfect. Holiness doesn't mean perfection. It means set apart as significantly different. We are holy because God is holy. And we have a pattern of obedience, not perfection, but a pattern of obedience. 
and where there is disobedience, we have a large, healthy dose of repentance. We have godly grief that leads to repentance. We do not want to be seared individuals. People have a conscience that's been broken. Paul says that there are some demonic teachers, and they are teaching things not of God. In fact, these hypocritical demonic teachers were saying, if you really want to be holy, abstain from marriage. Don't get married. And if you really want to be holy, refuse to eat certain foods. Now I want to tell you that whenever any religious teacher or a public politician or someone who makes policies and enacts practices that somehow tampers with God's institution of marriage, friend, that suggestion is demonic. Because marriage belongs to God. It is his institution. He's the one who created it. He builds every society upon it. And by God's design, marriage is for a biological man and a biological woman until death should separate them. Any other definition, any other arrangement, any other understanding of marriage is demonic. And so you and I have to be leery of anybody or anything or, or any group who somehow defines marriage in a way that is different than the way God defines it. When somebody tampers with marriage, it is from the devil himself. These individuals said, if you really want to be holy, don't get married. But Paul says marriage is a gift from God Almighty. Unless you have the gift of singleness, you need to get married, Paul would say. And marriage is by God's design. Biological man, biological woman, till death do them part. Then they also said, if you really want to be holy, abstain from eating certain foods. Paul doesn't even list for us what those foods were. They were so common, so prevalent in the teaching what Paul is saying is, you are not made holy because of some food you do not eat. You're made holy because you receive what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You are declared holy the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the moment you surrender unto him. That de declaration over your life, you are made holy. And from thenceforth, you try to demonstrate that holiness for God in a watching world. Horatio Spafford is exactly right. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You are declared holy because of what God did for you in Christ Jesus at Calvary. Jesus died in your stead. He was placed in your grave. On the third day, he was raised to give you eternal life. He's ascended to the heavens, and one day, God the Father will give a wink and a nod to God the Son, and by the power of God the Spirit, Jesus will descend and rescue his bride. He will establish his kingdom, both now and forevermore. Everything about our holiness is found and bound in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Gospel holiness shapes what we believe. But secondly, gospel holiness also shapes how we behave. It's in verses 6 to 8. In verse 6, Paul simply says to Timothy, his son of the ministry, you are a good minister if you warn people about this. 
Let them chase after the Holy One who's been chasing after them. Don't chase after some frivolous myth. Don't chase after some empty wise tales. No, you chase after the one who's been chasing after you. Train yourself in godliness. Physical training has some value, but godliness has value in this life and the life to come. When Paul says to Timothy, and thereby Timothy says to the crowd, train yourself in godliness. First and foremost, you've got to realize and admit that godliness doesn't come naturally. Not even for the redeemed. Just because you accepted Jesus Christ, just because you've walked through the waters of baptism, yes, you are declared holy. But then you've got to demonstrate that holiness in your life. You've got to train yourself to be holy. The Apostle Paul likens this godly training to an athletic event. It's not uncommon for Paul to use an athletic analogy. He says that physical training has some value. But training in godliness has all value. Value in this life and the life to come. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you subjected your body to strict physical training. If you're anything like me, it's been a hot minute. It's been a while since I have subjected my body to physical strict training. And from the looks of some of y'all, it's been a mighty long time since you subjected yourself to some strict physical training. Y'all realize, many of you realize that our son Nathan for 11 years was a competitive swimmer. Now, in those early years, we used the term competitive quite loosely. <laughs> but later in high school, things got pretty serious pretty quick. Nathan really got serious about swimming competitively. For the last two or three years of high school, he would sit down with his coach, have a one-on-one -on -one meeting in the fall, where the coach would map out the training schedule for the upcoming year. He would give meaning to the madness of why they were having all these practices and doing all these two-a-days. And he would describe it in scientific ways, in nutritional ways, mental ways, physical ways, metabolical ways. He would explain to Nathan, this is why we do what we do when we do it. This is what's going on in your body. This is how your muscles are responding. This is why we're training your muscles in this manner. Now, quickly, it went whoop, right over my head. But Nathan, he ate it up. He really gave himself this thing. And so for the last couple of years of high school, man, he was serious about competitive swimming. And he gave himself to strict physical training. Whenever we got close to a significant meet, he would enter into one of those intense training cycles. And everything about his life was marked in those weeks and months leading up to that event by sacrifice and focus. And boy, did Nathan sacrifice. And boy, did Nathan get focused. He would put himself on a sleep schedule, hoping to give his body enough rest. He would drink an insane amount of water so that his body wouldn't cramp during the brutal two-a-days, early in the morning before school started, and then in the evening after school was over. And 
in those intense cycles, he would not miss a day of practice. Even if that cycle happened while we were on vacation. There were more than a few vacations where we would have to find a training facility. And we'd have to call ahead and rent a lane for those few days for that week. We did this in Shelbyville, Kentucky. We did this in Orlando, Florida. There were numerous places. And Jane Ellen would call ahead. She would secure that lane. And I would take Nathan during those morning hours. And he would go and get his work out in because he was so focused. Because he wanted to, he wanted to be ready for that upcoming event. He was focused. He was diligent. He was sacrificial. He was so obsessed that sometimes it became downright obnoxious to everybody else living with him. Because in those moments of intense training, that's really the only thing that mattered. That's all that mattered to him. And so everything else became kind of a, a, a frustration. You know, things like homework, uh, work schedule at Chick-fil-A, extracurricular activities at school, even family events. And, and there'd be times that those things would frustrate him because he was so singularly focused because he wanted to prepare his body and prepare his mind to achieve the goal that he had for this significant upcoming event. Now, none of this was pressure put on him by his mom or dad. I can barely swim. And Jane Ellen's a little bit better than me, but she's not a competitive swimmer. This was his thing. I think he gravitated to the water because he knew I could not be his coach. I think that's really why he became a swimmer. Because there were many times that I would tell him, you know, from my vantage point, son, it looks like you just need to kick your legs harder and move your arms faster. I think if you do that, you'll win the race. He gets so frustrated at me. Dad, there's so much more than that. I said, well, just from my, my vantage point, it looks like just kick your legs harder. Move your arms faster. But he and I both knew it was so much more than that. I, I got to tell you that in those last couple of years, really, my purpose was twofold. Number one, to be an encourager to my son. And number two, to help him with the mental preparation, getting ready for a race. You know that swimming is like so many things in life. It's as much mental as it is physical. There were oftentimes that the race was lost before a swimmer would get on the starting block. And conversely, there were times when the race was won before that swimmer ever got on the starting block. I loved my position in the stands. I sat in the stands and I just rooted for my son. I sat in the stands and I just cheered for him. I knew the work he had put in. I knew the effort. I knew the focus. I knew the sacrifice. And I just sat there and boy, I cheered for him. And this may be a little bit sinful, but I'll just confess it to you. There were times when I would look at all those standing on the starting blocks. And there'd be a guy standing right beside Nathan. And I promise you that guy had been shaven since the third grade. Just a massive, massive young man. And I thought to myself, you just wait, because my boy's going to get in the water first, and my boy's going to whip you. And sometimes he did. And when Nathan achieved his goals, man, I rejoiced with him. And there were other times when Nathan did not reach his goals. He did not perform like he had hoped, and I agonized with him. 
I knew the effort he had put into it. I knew how focused he was. I could tell how much pain his body was in. I wish I could take the pain away, but I couldn't. But I just stood there and I just encouraged him and I just cheered him on. And I said, son, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You didn't dog it, not once. You gave it your best. Nathan has learned some life lessons that will really take him throughout his entire life. The lesson of of learning to set a goal and reach for that goal. And sometimes you exceed it. Other times you fail to meet it. But you still have the goal out there. You still sacrifice and you're still diligent and you're still focused on what you think God wants you to do. What great lessons. Paul says to Timothy, subjecting your body to strict physical training has some value. But training in godliness has value in this life and the life to come. What does Paul mean by training in godliness? We've already said, apparently it's something you've got to be intentional about. It doesn't come naturally. You've got to work at this thing called holiness. So this morning, let me quickly give you three takeaways. Three takeaways of how you and I can train in godliness. First one is this. We have to reduce the gap. Reduce the gap. In his book entitled The Hole in Our Holiness, it's Kevin DeYoung who says there's a gap that has developed between our love for the gospel and our love for personal godliness. And we've got to reduce that gap. We love to think about the gospel. We love to receive the gospel. We love to sing about the gospel. We love to proclaim the gospel. We love the gospel and the benefits of it. We love the God of the gospel. We love this tremendous gift of salvation that's only made possible in Jesus Christ. Though we were dead in our sins, God in Christ has made us alive and we rejoice over that gospel. We love the gospel. But there is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for personal godliness. Remember that when Jesus saved you, he saved you to be holy. You're to be holy because God is holy. The word holy is mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. God is saying, hey, this is who I am. This is who I've made you to be. I've created you to be holy. And so God has saved us. So that, yes, we would be spared from the flames of hell, but he has saved us so we would be holy and act holy. Once again, it's Kevin DeYoung who says that on that last day, God will not acquit you because your good works were good enough. But God will be looking for evidence that your good confession wasn't phony. Your personal holiness gives evidence that what you say is really what you believe, and what you believe shapes how you behave. You say unto the Lord, Lord, I receive the declared holiness that you have for me in Jesus Christ, and because of that, I want to demonstrate holiness before you in a watching world. So we reduce that gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. We've got to to love holiness 
as much as we love the holy God that gives us his holiness. So we reduce the gap. Secondly, we have to be gospel-driven. You and I have to be gospel-driven. Whenever we're obsessed about anything, that obsession will lead some people to be obnoxious at you, right? I mean, some people, when they see your obsession, they will become obnoxious. They'll be like, you are so obsessed with this or that. Everything is about this or that. You are so singularly focused. And you and I need to be obsessed with the gospel. We have to be individuals who say, Lord, I want your gospel to sink so deeply in me that it sticks out of me even when nobody's watching. I want your gospel, I want to be so driven by your gospel that it shapes what I say and how I think. It shapes my attitude. It shapes my actions. It shapes everything about me. All my decision making is shaped because of your gospel. Lord, help me to be gospel driven. A person who's gospel driven understands that there is a lot more value in your relationship with Jesus Christ than the value you get from a three-second glance at a computer screen. Somebody who's gospel-driven realizes that it is so much more refreshing to have your witness intact than to extend the middle finger to that idiot who just cut you off on the interstate. The person gospel-driven that's obsessed with the gospel realizes that it is, it is so, so much greater to stoke my fire for the Savior than to stoke my fire for personal sin. The person who is driven by the gospel knows that we rest in the gospel, but we never rest in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the demonic. We rest in the gospel, but we never rest from the battle. So if you are battling to do what is right and think what is right and say what is right and live what is right. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Don't throw in the towel. Don't wave the white flag. Don't quit. You keep on battling. You rest in the gospel. That doesn't change. But you never rest from your battle against sin. You never rest in your battle that the gospel presents because one who is gospel-driven realizes that my fight against sin is a fight to trust God. If I say I really trust God, then I will fight against my sin. And being gospel-driven is being so obsessed with your holiness before a holy God. You say, Lord, I trust you. And in my trusting, I'm going to fight against my flesh. You and I, if we're going to train in godliness, we got to reduce the gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. We have to be gospel driven. We have to care about this thing so much that we say, Jesus, I really want you to stick out of me. You live inside of me, stick out of me in everything that I say and think and feel and do. But third and finally, the third takeaway is that we need to abide in Christ. There is a difference between union and communion. Union is the unchanged position 
you have before the Lord. Paul describes this unchanged position or union that you have with the Lord in a two-word phrase, in Christ. Either you are in Christ or you're not in Christ. Paul uses that two-word phrase, in Christ, over 200 times in his letters in the New Testament. He says, this is the summation of salvation. This is, this is how we describe who we are. We are in Christ. Either you're in him or you're not in him. So union is the unchanging position that you are with the Lord. But communion, another word, could be fellowship. Your communion or your fellowship is relational proximity that you are with the Lord. Sometimes in your walk with Christ, you feel close to him. Sometimes you feel far from him, right? I'm not the only one, am I? Sometimes, some seasons, some chapters of your life, you feel very close to the Lord. Other times, you feel distant. Did God go anywhere? The answer is no. We're the ones that change the relational proximity that we are with God. We've oftentimes said, you can be as close to God as you want to be. The one person most responsible for your walk with the Lord is the person seated between the individual on your right and on your left. It's you. You want to be close to God? You can be. You can be as close to him as you want to be. You can have relational closeness. He's already established your union. You are in Christ. There is nothing you can do to get outside of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in the saving, nail-pierced hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. But relationally, Relationally, you can be close to his precious bleeding side, or you can feel distant from him. A good way to understand this analogy is with the analogy of marriage. The union of marriage, either you are married or you're not. You're not kind of married. You're not sort of married. Either you're married or you're not married. Now, if you are married, if you're in marital covenant, then relationally with your spouse, you can do things that will bring you close to your spouse. You can also do things that will drive you far from your spouse, right? So the analogy is pretty good. So you're in Christ positionally, but relationally, what can you do so that you can train yourself in godliness? What can you do so you can abide in Christ? I'm going to give you a few suggestions, and they're going to sound quite mundane, it's not real flashy, but it's pretty consistent that if you do these things, you'll be drawn close to the Lord. What kind of things am I talking about when I say abide in Christ? I'm talking about prayer, repentance, reading the Bible, engaging in worship, active in ministry. You do those five things, by and large, that helps you abide in Christ, and relationally speaking, it brings you close to the Lord. Every day, just start in prayer. And here's a prayer in my life, Lord, thank you for saving my sin-sick soul. You didn't have to, but you did. What a great day to start my day. What a great way to start my day. What a great way to start your day. Simply to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving a wretch like me. Prayer is simply talking to God. Repentance is the vomit of the soul. We repent the moment the Spirit of God reveals disobedience in our life. If you want to be distant from the Lord, don't repent. You say, well, 
all my sin is already paid for. It's already washed under the blood. Yeah, you're right. Positionally, you're right. But practically, your sin is a blockade between you and the Lord. And so when you sin, and you will sin, because you're not perfect this side of heaven. When you sin, you immediately respond with a healthy dose of repentance. You repent not just because you're embarrassed. You repent not just because somebody else may find out about your sin. You're, you repent not just uh, because, you know, you kind of feel bad or out of sorts. No, you repent because you have godly grief. You hate your sin as much as God hates your sin. To love God is to hate sin. To hate sin is to love God. And so we repent. That's the vomit of the soul. Also, I'd say read your Bible. And what that phrase means is simply this. Read your Bible. It's amazing what God does when God's people read God's word. And when you allow God's word to read you. Just take a chapter a day. Start with Matthew, work your way through. Start with Psalms, work your way through. Just take a chapter a day. Don't just skim. I want you to soak in the redemptive water of the word. Just soak in it. Just let the word wash over you. Just digest it, just that one chapter a day. You read the word, and the word of God will read you. And the end result is that God will draw you close to himself relationally. Also, engage in worship. Don't just attend worship, but engage in worship. Sometimes in our worship services, we're really getting after it, aren't we? And then there are other times. Have y'all seen yourself worship? I need to ask myself, have I seen myself worship? Sometimes we worship as if we were baptized in vinegar juice, right? I mean, we are so sour. We're so puckered. We're so upset about something. Hey, we come in here and we get the opportunity to engage in worship. Once again, it was Kevin DeYoung who simply said, the man who tries to do Christianity without the church Shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, shoots his grandchildren in the heart. If you try to do Christianity without God's church, it doesn't just wound you. It not only hurts you, it also hurts your children, and it hurts your grandchildren. Don't try to do Christianity without God's church, without a God-focused, Christ-centered, spirit-filled Bible-based church. Don't try to do Christianity without God's church. If you do, it's like shooting yourself in the foot, shooting your children in the leg, shooting your grandchildren in the heart. And I would also lastly say about ministry, engage in ministry. If you know the ministry that's been done for you by God in Christ, you can't help but do ministry for Christ. If you've received that good gospel, you can't help but share that good gospel. If you've received ministry, you can't help but to share that ministry, and you'll never get over the fact. You'll never get over the fact that a sinner can have a relationship with a sinless God.
May you never get over that. May you always be astounded by that. It's, it's a shocking, actually, that a sinner like you and a sinner like me, we can have a relationship with a sinless God because that sinless God sent his one only son so that he would become our sin so we could be declared under his sinlessness. So Jesus came and took our sinfulness and gave us his holiness. That holiness is declared over us. That holiness is to be demonstrated by us because gospel godliness Gospel holiness shapes what we believe and how we behave. This morning, can I ask you, are you in Christ? And the follow-up question, do you act like it? Are you in Christ, and do you act like it? If you're here today, and you're a Christian by word only, you're not a Christian. This is not works-based salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. But if grace through faith in Christ has saved us, it will be evident by our actions. You can't be a Christian in name only. If you're a Christian in name only, chances are you are not saved. Today can be the day of your salvation. If you are saved, not only in word, but also in walk, you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect except Jesus but you're trying to stockpile evidence of obedience, and when there's disobedience, you have a healthy dose of repentance. Man, if that's you, then you can agree with me this morning that there are times that the devil still gets in a pretty good shot every once in a while, doesn't he? There are times that the demonic cleans our clock. Sometimes it's a sucker punch, it's a haymaker, and it brings us to our knees, doesn't it? But friends, you you got somebody in the stands. You got somebody that's cheering for you. You have somebody who's proud of you. You have somebody who calls you son and daughter. You have somebody who's so much more than what I am to Nathan. You have someone who said, I came not just to identify with your pain, I came to take your pain away. I came to seek and to save you. And so you have someone in the stands who is rooting for you. You have someone in the stands who is your king. He's a, he's a king on the throne of your heart. You have somebody who says sin no longer has dominion over your life. You have somebody who says sin no longer has sway over your life. You have somebody who came to say, I've obliterated sin because you've made me your savior. So friends, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. His holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ has been declared over us. If you're in Christ, you're declared holy. If you're in Christ, you need to act holy. It doesn't come naturally for you, for me, for anybody. We gotta train ourselves in godliness. Maybe you're here today and you say, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Today can be the day of your salvation. We're about to sing. We want you to come. Maybe you're here today and you are in Christ. You are saved. You are redeemed. But you haven't been acting like it. And today you want to come and confess your sin. You want to have some sanctified vomit right here on the altar. That's perfectly fine. You just repent all you need to. 
Because God will clean up the mess. The one who's holy, he'll make you holy. Won't you come and be obsessed about him? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. Please move. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.